I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Very excited for today's conversation with John Horgan. Uh, did I pronounce that right, John? Sure. Yeah. Perfect. Sure. I love the answer. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, <laughs> could have pronounced it differently, but pronounced it right. Uh, and 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 when I say John Horgan, I am not talking about the BC Premier. Uh, for folks who were were getting really excited there for a second, is that his name? I had no. Apparently, I didn't know that. Apparently, uh, no. We are talking to the John Horgan who is a science uh, science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, um, and former senior writer at Scientific American. And John, I know that you've also written for the New York Times, Nat- National Geographic, Time, and Newsweek. Look, I'm just going to put it out there. You've we, never read any of those publications. Never heard of any of them. Uh, uh, I, 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 say this, I say this a lot, but um, I don't know jack shit about much and i most certainly don't know much about uh some of the stuff we're going to get into today but he's interested but i am so fascinated we're gonna we're gonna steer this into the direction of a conversation that we had on the podcast recently in a past feel good friday episode for our listeners and it was an episode that went into very bizarre territory when we were doing a what the health segment talking about um a woman named amanda fielding who drilled a hole into her head. Now, we're going to get into that. But before we do, John, uh, I know we're also going to be talking about mysticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rational Mysticism is the name of uh, one of your books, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so setting the stage there, let's start with this question. What is mysticism? Let's, let's start with that. Okay. Um, I think I should tell you, first of all, that um, I'm an old hippie. I grew up and I graduated from high school in 1971. So I was sort of on the tail end of the, uh, the 60s. And my generation was obsessed with mysticism. So by mysticism, I mean these extraordinary states um, during, during which you feel as though you are seeing reality the way it it actually is. You realize that your ordinary way of seeing in the world is um, is really incomplete. Mm. And uh, during these these extraordinary states, um, you think you're seeing God. You're seeing ultimate truth. You're seeing the pure light of the void. We have all these different words to describe what goes on in a mystical experience. But one of the paradoxical features of a mystical experience is, is that you can't describe it. 
You can't yeah. put it into ordinary words. Yeah. But people in my generation went after these experiences and, and especially a peak mystical experience, sometimes called enlightenment by uh, meditating, by chasing after various um, gurus, by doing yoga, and especially in my case, by taking psychedelic drugs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say there's a, there's a lot of, um, we're all, we all have a, have a pretty, have a pretty long background in, in yoga. We've all uh, taught yoga pretty extensively and I lead yoga teacher trainings and mysticism. We, we don't typically use the word mysticism, but like the, it, 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 you know, it's, it's in there in the way that enlightenment is sort of a enlightenment is sort of a, a, a sort of like a North star mm. and all these different practices um, and means through which you can uh, in, in the, in yoga terminology is like lift the veil uh, to lift the veil, to see reality more clearly, to mm. see it for what it is versus what you perceive it to be. Um, so, so, so for context in, in some ways we're sort of like, we're, we're there with you on that. And but, also through doing a psychedelic and also through psychedelics. Yeah. Yes. It, it, <laughs> interestingly enough, when you were talking about that, it reminded me, so I, I won't go into the story because I've talked about it on the podcast at length, but, um, uh, personally, a, a, a mystic experience, a mysticism experience that I've had in the past was, um, I did five MEO DMT and I, what, what I experienced was something that afterwards I was trying to explain it to these guys and there were, there truly was no possible way for me to articulate how grandiose and, and vast and life altering that experience was. I could try as hard as I might, but it was just, it was, it was next to impossible to really relay that information outwards to anybody else. And yeah. so, so, and what I experienced was what I, what I view as very tangible, very real, very objective. Yet, what I find interesting is that, you know, as a science writer, you're someone who's, who's focused on writing and focusing on science, which is very um, objective, right? Science is a pretty objective practice. Uh, we we look for we look for the the truths that exist there with that exist out there within science and that are we quantifiable. Hold, they're quantifiable, and we hold that to be true. But when it comes to this idea of mysticism or these experiences, like you know, doing ayahuasca or five meo DMT or or um, you know, a yogic breathwork practice that brings you into some altered higher state, there's as objective as it feels it's also kind of subjective is it not like so how does how does that how do you how does a science writer get into writing about something that is inherently so subjective even though it feels really objective yeah that's a good question well just to give you a specific example for my book rational mysticism which i was writing about 20 years ago uh, came out in um, in 2003 i actually took ayahuasca um, mm. on a on a cliff overlooking the pacific ocean with about um, 20, um, yuppies, uh, affluent, uh, white people paid a couple hundred bucks to take this stuff. And I had my reporter's notebook with me. I'm, I'm tripping my brains out and, um, and I'm trying to, and it's, <laughs> and it's nighttime and I'm trying to jot down notes mm. on, on, uh, what's going on with me. And I'm looking at the other people to try to see what's happening with them at the same time. So that's one. And, it, you know, I wasn't that successful, certainly not at the peak of the trip when I felt like my 
brain was melting and squirting out through the years. But uh, <laughs> lovely feeling. But at, but on a, on a sort of broader level, uh, let me back up and just tell you. As I said, I was I was sort of a a hippie aspiring mystic when I was a kid. I was chasing mm. after enlightenment and uh, and sort of exceptional experiences of of any kind. And then I realized I had to get a job. I had to settle down. And also the, the mystical path was in, instead of giving me answers, which is what I was looking for, it was confusing me and actually alienating me from people around me and from mm. ordinary life. It, it was it was kind of messing me up. And so that's when I decided to turn to science, which I'd always loved when I was a kid. And I I I decided that science is our best route to truth, not mysticism, not LSD, not um, not meditation and yoga and things like that. So th this is in the early 80s. Um, and I pursued science. I was writing for Scientific American, and I took very seriously the idea of uh, what's sometimes called the unified theory of physics that would explain where reality came from, why the Big Bang went bang in the first place, what created this particular universe that we live in. There were theories of uh, consciousness, of how consciousness emerges from matter um, that were floating around in the 1980s. And what happened was I got really interested in the, in the limits of science, how far science could go in explaining the world. And I decided, realized that the scientists, when they, it came to the borders of knowledge, didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Right. And mysticism kept coming back into the picture. Some of these scientists I was talking to uh, said that maybe mysticism would have to give us some of the ultimate answers we were looking for, or maybe mysticism and science would turn out to be complementary in some way. Right. And, and I found that idea fascinating because I never really had put all my youthful experiences uh, tripping behind me. And that's why I decided to write this book, Rational Mysticism, to see if there was a way of looking at the world that could integrate the kind of rational scientific perspective with um, mystical experiences. Right, right. There, there's a there's a weird thing, and I'm and I'm uh, I'm curious to know whether you guys have all felt this, all having had you know psychedelic experiences where you feel like you've, where you know, that the veil at least temporarily is lifted and you kind of see mm -hmm. with more clarity. Kind of ironic in the way that, and let me know if you guys have felt this, that sometimes that can then come along when you feel like you have seen the world from this very objective like clear perspective after having one of these experiences that can often be accompanied by like a, a, a sense of superiority mm. in the, in what you said there, John, mm. like you couldn't relate to some people around you because you feel like you've seen and they have you not get it. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, mean, like, that, I get I, that's it. That's why you, that's why you have people that, you know, th that go and do an ayahuasca ceremony and at their first one, they come back with a fucking God complex, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like, which is, which is weird because because you, 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 you know, with using this, using this term like that, you've lifted the veil in, in, in a lot of, especially in yoga, uh, yoga philosophy, ego is 
a part of the veil. Like ego is the veil. So you kind of have this experience that you feel like makes you see more clearly, Mm. but yet it's accompanied by like another layer of, of, uh, of subjective viewing of reality that, that obscures your ability to see clearly because you Mm -hmm. think that you've, you know, you've got the answer. Yeah. You, you guys feel you guys well, feel that I, I I identify with what you're saying, but I also think of it in the sense that like I, there's so many narratives that are pushed on us through through media, through um, through our conditioning, through society. But at at our core, we're all just animals. So <laughs> when you when you take drugs, like I think of like the experiences when I've done the um, biggest doses of mushrooms. I it's it's all of it's a lot of like the materialistic aspects of society that sort of um, mm. lose their sense of meaning to me. Mm. The, the meaning that I sort of project on them through the narratives I hear from, you know, media and friends and the the uh, culture of the culture that we live in today. So I wonder if there's uh, John, this is a question for you. Like, is is there this like sort of idea that when we go back to like are more pure forms as like the evolutionary byproducts of, of the world that we live in. Like, do we, is it, does it make sense that like these narratives are just sort of conditioning us to be more fucked up than we probably need to be? <laughs> First of all, I'll just say one of the, you know, I really immersed myself in psychedelic culture when I was writing um, rational mysticism and I'm still kind of part of it. I know a lot of people, uh, in that world, the problem of narcissism, the God complex mm. is huge. A lot of people who take a lot of psychedelics are assholes. And the yeah. irony, <laughs> totally. the, the irony is that, you know, it's supposed to make you cool. It's supposed to make you wise and compassionate and all that. But I will say this is a problem for all the spiritual paths. A lot of Buddhists I know are assholes as well. Yeah. So <laughs> when, when you, you know, you have these spiritual experiences and it's this terrible irony that it's supposed to connect you with everything and your ego dissolves and um, you're, you know, you're part of the, the oneness of the universe. And if that's true, why are so many gurus like predatory jerks who are yeah. taking advantage of their followers? This, this wasn't a problem for me so much because the, I had, I had this big trip in 1981 that in a way is the most important thing that ever happened to me. You know, you're talking about like going through the veil. Every asset head sort of imagines the trip where you really go all the way. Mm. And um, this was the trip where that happened for me. And uh, and it was it was like a very exotic drug I've never had. Bef- uh, I'd never had it before since. Like much stronger than anything I've had. Uh, any other kind of drug experience I've had. I was out for like almost 24 hours. I wasn't even conscious of where I was. It was in this, um, in this dream world. And um, I'll just say it. I became God in this trip and, and I freaked out. I I had this horrible identity crisis and um, because my experience of being God wasn't great. It was, absolutely terrifying and when i came out of it um i you know i just was obsessed with it and i actually thought that i had the power to destroy the world because i wasn't supposed to have learned this and once the secret of existence has been discovered there's no point to existence anymore 
I, you know, I've actually written about this in some of my books. So it wasn't that I felt better or smarter uh, than anybody else. I felt like totally freaked out and alienated so much so that I thought about uh, joining a monastery for a while. And this is when I'm still in college, trying to graduate, thinking about what I want to do with my life. That was part of what made me think, all right, this, this shit's just too crazy. I'm going to have to like back away from this and go into some other way of, of understanding the world, being with the world. You know, I, I wanted to have a girlfriend. I wanted to have a job and all that kind of stuff. And thinking that I was God and had, had you know, this, um, this kind of divine perspective of things was not helpful. So that's why yeah. I turned that away could- from mysticism. You know, mm-hmm. and for like 10 years or so, and then gradually started drifting back mm-hmm. into it. I mean, going into a job interview and saying that you think you might be God could either play very well or very poorly, <laughs> yeah, depending absolutely. who the interviewer is. <laughs> Depends on the company. Yeah. John, do you think that, do you think, so coming back to this notion of like, of the, the, the potential for science and, and um, mystic experiences to like merge together do you, do you, after all the writing that you've done, all the research that you've done, after all the life experiences that you've had, you've had do, you, do you see those two things being capable of coming together for us to make more sort of mind-blowing realizations of the, the, the realities of the world that we live in? I, I, or do you, or do, or, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, the answer is yes. I, I mean, okay. th- this is something that I've, I've worked my whole life to achieve. And I'd say at this point, yes, I, I sort of feel as though here's, here's the way I see science and mysticism converging. Um, science, I think, and you know, I, I write about particle physics and I write about you know the quest for the origin of life and the attempt to understand consciousness, all the you know, the biggest mysteries. And science, I think, has discovered that our existence is infinitely improbable. Yeah, the origin yeah. of the universe, infinitely yeah. improbable. So I, physicists don't have a clue how the Big Bang happened. Uh, same with the origin of life. The emergence of consciousness from uh, matter, it, it's like a wide open field. It's totally crazy. Nobody has any idea. Mm. So um, I think when you look at the breadth of science and what it says about nature, we know a lot, but still your reaction should be, holy, Jesus Christ, like everything is so strange and improbable. And for me, the the core experience of psychedelics, there's all kinds of crazy shit that you see when you're, when you're tripping, um, you know, including stuff about God that I was just describing to you. But the, the takeaway for me is just that life is really weird, mm. really improbable and strange. Mm. And that converges, it's like a visceral, um, a visceral way of knowing what science also tells us rationally. Yeah, right. Did, did, what are your thoughts on this like resurgence of, of psychedelics within science? And, mm. you know, we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, psilocybin being used for patients that are 
dealing with end of life care and we're seeing MDMA being used for, you know, PTSD and, and LSD being used in studies. Like what, what, what do you, what do you see that, how do you see the future unfolding when it comes to the use of psychedelics, when it comes to uh, various forms of therapies or even just various forms of, of, of exploration of mm-hmm. consciousness? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm amazed at what's happened. I grew, when I was a teenager, I started tripping when I was 15 years old and you could really get in trouble for smoking Mm -hmm. pot or, or taking, taking LSD. Uh, Just last week I was on Nantucket Island and uh, you know, finishing up my summer vacation. I bought marijuana at a legal dispensary. I bought a bunch of edible. I I mean, it was, that's crazy. That's the first time (laughs) I've done that. And, and you know, it's commonplace now, but for me, it was like, what the fuck? Whoa. This is yeah, totally, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And uh, you know the the idea that it looks like psilocybin is going to be, uh, uh, or maybe it's already happening in some places, used as a legal um, complement to psychotherapy in the in the United States fairly soon. I think it's fantastic, and I'm really covering. I, I'm looking at the the coverage, the journalism on um, on this psychedelic renaissance uh, with with great curiosity. I, I try to follow it very closely. What worries, there are two things that worry me. One is the commercialization of it. Yeah. And, yeah, and, it, and it's coming with a lot of hype and bullshit. And, and we're already seeing that. Yeah. Like, you know, like that, that's, that's coming, that's coming through real, real fast and hard. Mm-hmm. And psychedelics are not, I mean, I, I've had amazing experiences on psychedelics, but they also can really fuck you up. Yeah, um, yeah, you can have really negative experiences, and but another part of it is that the, you know the companies who are trying to monetize this stuff are all saying you need to take it in a safe location with a psychotherapist, and I get that, and you know they've got to say that, of course. But my greatest experiences are when I don't know, like I'm with a friend and we go tramping up yeah. a mountain, and we're yeah. you know we're tripping and looking around and we're not under the supervision of a doctor. So I'm, I'm part of me is worried about the overselling of psychedelics. Another part worries that, that psychedelics, they're this kind of wild thing and they are being tamed mm. for commercialization purposes. Mm. Right. 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 favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I find that interesting too because we had um, we had a, a guest on the podcast who was the the first person in Canada to legally use psilocybin to uh, treat anxiety, and uh, he t- talked us through the experience. And he's sitting in a in a, a room in his house on a couch. There's seven people around. Uh, he's got a blindfold on and he sits there for six or seven hours and has this like really profound experience with that, a, with a psychologist, a psychotherapist, with a well. psychotherapist there and a documentary film crew. And, and, uh, and after that experience, he was, he was better. It, 
totally took totally away his anxiety. His yeah. Wow. But also the 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 thing that makes I mean the thing that makes you better in that in that situation is not the drug itself. It's the experience that you have. It's the rewiring of your neural network as you go through the trip and and see and learn things as you're there. And I agree with you. Like the the greatest trips that I've never experienced a, a therapeutic trip where I'm being observed or in a room and it's uh, you know I'm there with the doctor. But uh, the ones that have been the most profound and memorable for me are the ones where the sun is setting and it's like the most beautiful colors I've ever seen my in my entire life. And then I have this profound realization that oh, the only thing that matters in life are the relationships that I have. Mm. And then that sticks with yeah. me. Set and setting. But, yeah, set and setting, but like also <laughs> set and setting to a de- degree because it, to me it shouldn't have to necessarily be a hospital room or a, you know, mm-hmm. fill in the blank with whatever medical yeah. Uh, yeah. Set, or, set and setting it has to be. Though I understand the benefits of it. Yeah. I want to uh, ask you about um, consciousness uh, you, you said something earlier that reminded me of, um, you know, just the, the fact that we don't, you know, like what, how, how consciousness emerges, um, out of, out of matter and the, our understanding of consciousness. I was watching, I don't know if you're familiar with the, I, I talk about it quite a bit on, on the show. There's a YouTube channel called Veritasium. Um, it's run by a guy, he's a PhD in science education and he's got, he, he, he really, he really communicates like complex scientific ideas in real in really really great ways using like really great visuals and animations and stuff. And he did this one about and I can't remember the what the actual topic was. It had something to do with with consciousness. And he was talking to a guy at Cornell, and the the professor at Cornell basically said like what we've done really well in science is analyze like how small like individual parts of the brain work and why they work. Um, as these compartmentalized sections, and we're 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 kind of good at at at, lo- at going to each little compartment, and going like, well, that you know, this works in this way, and this is why it works, and this is you know, we have some pretty good study based evidence on on why this is. But when you zoom out from that and you look at how that all how all those systems function together to create consciousness, we really we just have no fucking clue. And I'm wondering from your from from being a science. Uh, a science journalist and, you know, observing tons of, of, of perspectives and how this has happened. What's your, what's your, what's your take on consciousness uh, and some of the most like interesting, you know, perspectives that you've learned about over the years? Sure. Um, Well, I've been writing about consciousness in a pretty serious way for more than 30 years Uh, in the late eighties. I um, became interested in, this theory of Francis Crick, one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. He was the co-discoverer of uh, the double helix. And he had this sidekick, a younger guy named Christoph Koch. And uh, they said consciousness comes out of stuff that the brain does. And they had this pretty detailed theory. And um, their, their larger point was, we'll understand consciousness by studying the brain of, you know, human brains and uh, brains of cats and dogs and things like that. And it all looked very plausible. And I took it seriously. Crick said he thought consciousness was a solvable problem. Looking back, people were delusional to think that consciousness could be explained in that way. And what's happened over the last 
30 years is that the, the, the field of consciousness studies, uh, Francis Crick was responsible for bringing a lot of people in, making it a respectable scientific problem. But since then, it's just exploded. It's not like a paradigm shift. It's a paradigm explosion. There is no paradigm. There is no kind of central set of assumptions that that the major researchers agree on, and they they work from that basis. I mean, psychedelics are part of it. Psychedelics are contributing to the kind of wildness of consciousness studies. Buddhism. If you go to a conference on uh, on consciousness these days, and a lot of people will be talking about Buddhism, which is kind of like going to a physics conference. And having the physicists talk about, you know, the Aristotle's idea of the elements of whatever it is, fire, water, earth, and, and <laughs> air. I mean, it's crazy. Um, you have psycho Freudian psychoanalysis is still in the mix. One of the hottest ideas right now is panpsychism, which says that all matter, you know, like my pen here, uh, there's some consciousness in all matter which to me whoa. is, I mean, the acid headed in me goes, yeah, like, whoa. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> that's me. I'm going, whoa, yeah, I buy it. <laughs> but, but the, you know, and, and this is this is something that is kind of characteristic of my writing. Yeah, there's this old hippie acid head, but then I'm also this really kind of mean, hard-nosed, skeptical, ooh, scientific ooh. American guy. And I go, panpsychism, that's fucking bullshit. Come on. Yeah, right, 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 right. That so, sounds like such a great mix. That's such a great mix. Right. That's such a great perspective really to come from. And, and also, I think, kind of necessary, when, totally. especially when it comes to these these sorts of things, which I think is a, which I think is a really great segue into this whole trepanation thing. Um, you know, speaking of weird science and, and consciousness and the merger of mysticism and, and, and science... Um, uh, th man, th this trepanation conversation that came up a few weeks ago really blew our minds. Jared got, Jared got really mad at me. I, well, I didn't get mad at you, but I, but I was, I was like, so well, we can get into that. Cause I want to, cause I want to get, I want to get John's take, but, um, uh, to, to kind of set this up in case any of our listeners missed that feel good Friday episode. Can you, uh, can you walk us through your experience in meeting Amanda um, at that conference back in, in 2000, whatever it was, 2001, 2001. Yeah. So this was a conference. I think the title was altered states of consciousness, something like that. It was basically a, a meeting on psychedelics. So it was right. all these kind of old and younger, um, people who are really into psychedelics, some of whom had PhDs and were doing really fancy research. And there was a cocktail party and there was this tall, elegant looking um, woman. And I introduced myself and we just started chatting and I'm asking about her background. And then she's telling me that she's really interested in psychedelics and she's also into um, trepanation, this ancient uh, method of, um, well, this is just drilling holes in your head. And, <laughs> and she said that, uh, that she had, um, she had done it herself mm -hmm. and she had done it to herself when she was young back in uh, 1970. And I, I'm like, wow, really? And, she, and I said, do you still do it? And she said, um, she said, yeah. Uh, she said, I, I need to get, you know, the, the bone grows back after a while. So I need to get my whole 
refreshed uh, or re redrilled. And I'm like, this is, this is far out. I said, I said, do you have a hole in your head right now? And she said, um, yes. And I said, can I see your hole? I actually said that. <laughs> that, that sentence. I can, I, that. can I see your uh, hole? She fuck. had bangs. So she pulled her bangs up and there was this little indentation right at the top of her forehead. No. I'm like, wow, that, wow, that is amazing. And then after meeting her, I Googled her and I found out that she's this kind of famous um underground cult figure for having made a movie of herself in 1970 while she was drilling this hole in her head. And, you know, by the end of it, she's all covered with blood. I just found it on, on, yeah. uh, online uh, this morning, at least uh, snippets of it. Heartbeat in the brain. We, we, and, and actually on the episode, we watched a clip from, from the, the movie. It's wild. Where she, you know, she, she, again, with this very elegant, um, beautiful, almost like like uh, uh, Victorian voice yeah. is like is is walking uh, walking the viewer through her 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 um, through the steps of which she's you know shaving the top of her head and drilling this hole in and you're looking at it and it's like the, her whole face is just covered in blood and and then she goes on to say she felt she felt like this this great elation and and relief and then went out and had a steak dinner with like you know a dinner party or whatever whatever the fuck she went <laughs> on to do next i can explain that though man i've been on stage in front of a group of people and even just like mm -hmm. making somebody laugh you yeah. feel this feeling of elation great. she's there drilling a fucking yeah. hole in her head yeah. like like basically making a real life horror movie yeah. in front of people yeah. and then yeah that would feel i would feel really elated after that too so so going through going through the history of trepanation this is like this dates back eons right like back like it's like an old egyptian practice maybe even before before then um and can you explain like like the to our listeners what the what the thought process is maybe not her thought process but like someone who is What's who is the, pro trepanation the goal what is, yeah what is the what is the purpose of of trepanation whether it be self-trepanation or trepanation done by a you know, well, uh, a scientist or, I, or a doctor that might agree to that. Listen, I, I don't know a lot about it. I think in the, I think in the olden days, uh, the idea was that you're, you know, you've got spirits in your head. They're making yeah. you crazy. You drill a hole in your head and the spirits will come out. What, mm -hmm. uh, what Amanda Fielding told me, and by the way, you know, you talk about her, her voice. She actually is a lady. I mean, she's a British mm -hmm. lady. She's, she's aristocracy. And she said, that it kind of she described it as relieving the pressure in her brain she said it enhanced the effects of marijuana and lsd and uh, and other drugs it just made her more enlightened i, I tell you i i think all that is as bullshit I, I i to me what her case shows is the the desperation that people have the mm. extraordinary lengths that they go to um to feel better and, and mm -hmm. to transcend their lives, this is something, you know, I've taken ayahuasca twice now. Uh, I took it once, 1999, for my book, Rational Mysticism. I took it again just a couple of years ago, you know, before COVID in a, in a basement on Long Island with a, you know, a bunch of other uh, middle-aged people. And I don't know if you guys 
have done ayahuasca, but everybody is throwing up and they're yeah. and they're crying or giggling hysterically. You know, you're looking again, the journalist in me, I'm I'm tripping, but I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these people in tremendous distress. And mm. I'm thinking, what are, what we, are doing? we doing? Yeah, like yeah. Yeah. what what's going on here? And and to me, it it indicates that we're dissatisfied with our ordinary lives and our ordinary way of seeing the world. And I, I guess I feel lucky in this, at this point in my life, I've, for one reason or another, it's pretty easy for me to, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here in a one bedroom apartment in, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, but to me, it's, this is like a miracle. I look mm-hmm. around, you know, I'm talking to you guys you are in Canada or, talking by the internet here it's crazy fucking amazing <laughs> yeah. and and so i i still trip you know I, I dropped acid a couple of times just in the last couple of weeks you know small doses um but it doesn't you know it's more just for fun uh yeah. and i i wish more people had you know, because I I hear all the time from people who say that they see life as meaningless, they're really depressed, um, you know, and they're asking me for answers, which is like, oh, my God, you know, that's, mm. they're really desperate to to reach out um, to me. And I, I, I basically just try to tell them, but it's a, such a cliche, but it's true, that life is a miracle. It's a gift. Um, every single instant, it's not something you don't have to do extraordinary things or go chasing after enlightenment. It's you're enlightened every moment. Yeah. Enlightenment is just seeing is paying attention to the, uh, you know, to the improbability of things, the weirdness of things that's right there in front of you at any instant. Do you think, think, do you think that like through evolution that we'll ever, we'll ever reach a point where it, it, it seems like we are just, innately obsessed with trying to figure out the meaning of everything. And, and, and by that, I mean like the meaning of existence, you know, to figure out that question of like, how the, how the fuck did we get here? What, what, what was the beginning? What is going to be the end? Like, do you think, do you think that we will ever, I guess for lack of a better term, like grow out of that? No. Or do you think that that, do you think that that is just, that's just the nature of, I mean, it's hard to say that that's the nature of life because it's like I look at this fucking dog here laying on the, <laughs> laying on the floor sleeping. Rupert doesn't give a shit. He doesn't fucking care about where he yeah. came from or what the you know what exists beyond beyond the the stars. Like he's just there's a it, bliss it, in his, in 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 the yeah. lack of evolution that he's gone yeah. through. You know, right? And so I guess my 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 wonder is like, will we ever reach a point where we think about Grand Theft Auto, dude? You beat the game, and then it's like I don't want to play the game anymore. Because there's no purpose. Like you beat the game. Right. Like you, yeah. you, you made yeah, you, you yeah. like there was all these objectives. You figured out yeah. the objectives. You beat the game, and then and then it goes, hey, you beat the game, and here's all the money yeah. that you could use in the game, and now you can go do whatever you want in the game, and you go, oh well, well I'm done. I'm, I'm but done it kind of, yeah. but it kind of goes like I think about it in the sense that like looking at us compared to a dog, like we are hungry for connection and relationships, and if there's a way that we can be more connected with one another and more connected to like more, even more connected to the exist, the experience of just existing, then I feel like we have a desire to chase that and understand it because, and I guess it's kind of like ignorant to say too, because of like our, um, 
our elevated levels of intelligence where we, we can understand our existence, whereas a lot of other creatures we perceive to not be able to understand their existence. Knowing so, that we're going to die is the main, is, is the thing that so, separates yeah. us, yeah. I think, you know, Ooh. and I'm listening to what John's saying about, about being in a place that feels where, where you can really look around yourself and, 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 you know, even though it's nice to, you know, drop acid or take mushrooms or whatever, like a, a, as a fun thing, you know, and it might, it might still, it, it might st- still be of benefit to you to, to, you know, to reimmerse yourself in that experience when, you know, every so often, but you can outside of that in your day-to-day life, you can look around and, and see the amazement of, of what you're experiencing. And, and I feel like mm-hmm. I'm in a sort of similar place. I don't think I'm done. I don't think I'm done with that sort of that chase yet, but like the, on Saturday night, me and two of my buddies, we went out and we, uh, you know, at 1030 at night, we got on our bikes and we just cruised around the city and, and, and it's Saturday night and there's people out and there's people getting wasted and, and they're, you know, they're, 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 you know, you're a prof- you're, you're at, you're at a school there. Like there, there's, the students are coming back to town. They're getting totally trashed out in the streets and, and, and I'm looking at them going, I'm past that, but like, kudos to you. You're looking at them going, I'm so much better than you. I'm so much more enlightened. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, This is, this is something I I think about a lot. I mean, my job as a teacher, I I came to academia late. I needed the money. Um, You know, being a free, a serious science writer, it's hard to, uh, you know, I was trying to support a family of four and that was difficult. So got a job teaching. I love teaching now. And I see my job as, uh, and I, you know, tomorrow I, I start teaching my classes. I've got a class of freshmen and a couple of seminars. And uh, some of these kids, because, you know, I asked them, did you ever think about where the universe came from? Did you ever think about how life was created? Do you ever, you know, puzzle over that? Most of them have not. Uh, do you ever think about why there's something rather than nothing? And I see it as my job to get them to think about that stuff and, and to the and yeah. to become obsessed with it. The way the human brain is designed, you know, we were evolution made us designed us basically, you know, to reproduce, to make copies of ourselves, and the, the rest is not that important. So the idea of, I think you need to to cultivate this sense of, of wonder. A lot of people I think have it, but then they don't know what to do with it. And so they just kind of put it aside or they repress it actively because it can be, and it has been in my case in the past, it can fuck you up. It's like, Whoa, you know, Mm, I mean, if you really are, sort of seeing life as it is you're walking around with your jaw hanging open yeah. and going oh fuck you know you mm. like <laughs> like you're in the middle of a uh, of a big acid trip except that you don't need the acid really yeah. all you yeah. have to do is is open up your eyes so in my case it's a matter of i mean i'm very fortunate because i make a living by writing about these sorts of feelings and the philosophical and spiritual um, implications of them. But I think everyone can benefit by looking at life as a mystery. I thought you were going to ask me, do you think that the mystery can be solved? No, absolutely not. It cannot be solved. It never will be solved. I think the smarter we become, the further we go 
in science and philosophy and, you know, whatever counts as spirituality these days, the more we will become absolutely dumbfounded by the fact yeah. that we exist at all. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think it's, it, is it this doll. like innate sense of curiosity just to try to solve that? Or is it this like fear of, of death, like this awareness that we're going to die and this fear of death that makes us want to understand what happens after and what happened, what was here before? I do think, you know, our curiosity is, is really powerful. It's kind of utilitarian. You know, we're curious about things because we want to figure them out in ways that can uh, that can benefit us and advance our interests. Another, there's a another really important feature of our brains, our minds, is what I would call habituation, where you, you know, we want to get good at things. We want to be able to do things so well that we don't even have to think about them. So you know, when you drive a car, you're just driving along and you can think about other stuff. The problem with that tendency toward habituation is that you can end up sleepwalking through your whole life. You know, yeah. you're married, you've got a girlfriend, you got a boyfriend, you got a job. And, you know, at the end of the day, you think back and you're not even sure what you really did because yeah. you were just you were just on automatic. Yeah. So yeah. what you were just just describing, riding around on a bike in the middle of the night, you know, there are these things we can do. <laughs> to knock ourselves out of our ruts, out of our habituation. It doesn't have to be LSD and, and LSD can become a kind of rut in itself. Yeah. Um, but um, I think meditation works for some people, but yeah. just doing something different than what you had been doing or just paying close attention to what's going on in, in your own head and going on around you at any instant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that, cause that the, the bike ride, it's a, it's a, it's a conscious choice. It's a choice to be a conscious observer to, to go. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to, I'm participating, but I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go participate in a very zoomed out fashion. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to take in the world around me, like very consciously and like observe what the people are doing and observe what like the, what the city looks like at night and like looks at, looks like when I'm going at this speed versus in a car and, and you can, you can get so habituated in the way that, you know, how people look at their phones like zombies and, and are, and are, and are, and are simultaneously failing to see the absolute craziness. That is the fact that they have a phone in their hand that can connect them to every person on the planet and like, you know, you know, buy them a dildo and, and get the, you know, order, a order, a whatever you want. Like you can, you can do anything that you yeah. want on that phone, but yet you, you're kind of like dead behind the eyes while you do it and failing to recognize the craziness <laughs> yeah. of it. On the other hand, what I, I so I'm really into another thing I try to do with my students and actually everybody I know, um, in part because they're so resistant, is to tell them how amazing human progress has been and how amazing our our lives are. I mean, a lot, for a lot of people, life sucks around the world, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know we're here here in uh, North America. A lot of us live extraordinary lives. We can fly around the world, or at least, you know, we could before COVID. I hope we will. Again, we've got the internet, we've got all these incredible technologies. And we also have some leisure time to think about the kind of shit that we're talking about here, right? Yeah. To, you know, to ponder the meaning of life. If if you're a, if you're a hunter-gatherer uh, or, you know, some subsistence farmer somewhere, uh, that's a luxury think about Plato's cave and how to escape it and all that kind of stuff. So, 
what I'm hoping is that maybe more people will have the opportunity to be mystics and intellectuals and mm. seekers in, uh, in the future instead of just, you know, a small number of privileged types and professors or, um, you know, affluent spiritual uh, seekers. Um, I mean, that that's maybe asking too much of humanity. But I think given human progress, which, you know, has kind of backslid a little bit lately, but given the growing affluence of people around the world and the growing freedom, um, there might be more opportunities. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. We, we definitely have to ask a lot to get enough at least. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, also maybe the person controlling the simulation will just sort of program that into the code. <laughs> right. and yeah. It'll yeah. happen yeah. sooner rather yeah. than later. Hey, uh, hey, programmer. <laughs> Do you hear that? Right about now. Uh, John, I got to say this, uh, this conversation did not disappoint. It, it was as weird and as, uh, as beautiful as I was hoping it to be. So, so, so glad and so privileged to, to be able to sit down and, and have a conversation with you. Um, means the world to us, means the world to our listeners. And uh, how can people find your works? Uh, how can people keep up with, with what you're up to? Um, let's see. Um, I'm all over the place. They can Google me. I, you know, that guy, John Horgan, that Canadian politician, he's yeah. really, he's really, you know, I, I like to Google myself, see what people yeah. are saying about me. That guy is a fucking pain in the ass. He keeps yeah. scrubbing your style. He scrubbed you off the internet. Yeah, yeah he keeps he keeps saying shit that gets people upset. And as you know, if you Google John yeah. Morgan, it's all about this 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 idiot in uh, in British Columbia or wherever he is. Politician um, though, he'll he'll come and go quickly. Yeah, that's right. But that's I, right. I publish pieces on Scientific American um, on a regular basis, like at least uh, twice a month. And, um, you know, I've got a bu bunch of books you can find on uh, Amazon. So I'm very easy to find. Awesome. Sweet. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. This was really fun. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Thanks, John. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.